Well, today on the show, I am joined by Scott Robinson. Now, Scott always had a passion for cars right from an early age. Um, he followed that passion by becoming a BMW Master Technician in 1988, and he also found himself racing carts and open-wheel Formula 2 cars in his spare time. Scotty moved to the UK in 1991, working for several major BMW dealer groups before landing a position with McLaren Cars, working as a master technician on the F1 road car. After seven years at McLaren Cars and a total of 14 years working in the UK, he returned to Australia to the BMW dealer network and took up a sales career that allowed him to be involved in special projects, building motorsport cars, and also becoming the technical manager for the Mini Challenge race series. More new challenges came his way as a brand manager for such marks as Lamborghini and Lotus, with a focus of growing these boutique brands in Australia. With his personal passion for restoring classic cars and race car preparation, Scott started his own business, Modern Classic Motorsport, here in Brisbane. I'm looking forward to this. Scotty, welcome. Mate, thank you for making the time to come in, joining me in the studio. Thank thank you very much. It's great to be here. Good to uh, catch up again. Our paths have crossed a few times recently, but uh, it's been way too long, so lovely to be here. Mate, a few times, and we were just laughing uh, say off the air before, a mutual friend mm. who we know. This, this world of cars and motorsport is a very, very small world. Very true. Um, but Scotty, I'm I'm interested in you today. Mm. What I'd like to do is I'd like to go all the way back to when you were just a little whippersnapper, <laughs> long before you've gone and done all the cool things that you've gone on to do. Mm. As as a young man, what was it about cars that spoke to you? Um, it, I mean, it, it goes back to you know playing with toy cars as a kid, Lego, building trucks, building cars, Hot Wheels, Matchbox toys um scale electric sets all that kind of stuff um my dad was quite into cars he wasn't as car passionate as a lot of people are but he liked cars and he tinkered with cars at home um a little bit not not much but the nice part was when my brother and i were young uh we would go to motor racing events as well because he liked that too so i was introduced to motorsport pretty young went and watched group a uh touring cars especially when we moved up to brisbane from sydney um so it was a regular thing was to go to service paradise or lakeside to watch the group a touring cars um yeah jim richards tony longhurst all those guys um especially the bmws for some reason it was a brand that i loved there was a few people um around our area that had some bmws and i always used to um love those cars so there was a there was a um you know the 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 blocks were building from a young age yeah there was certainly an introduction there that mm. going into that world of motorsport and i guess seeing those things at full noise as well yeah around yeah. lakeside surface yeah. paradise unfortunately that track no longer here yep yep but um great great times good to, yeah we, we went to the speedway exhibition up yeah. here in brisbane um went to the drags at surface paradise when they had drag racing on. yeah right so yeah it was it was a good good thing my dad was into cars and you know we went to some nice events and it just got this spirit of that whole mm. adrenaline of motorsport. Yeah. Sucked you into it. Sucked you right in. <laughs> Sucked you right it in. It does that. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> and obviously a bit of a translation from being, you know, a fan behind the fence to finding yourself wanted, wanting to tinker. How, how did that mm. 
how, how did the idea of becoming a technician and particularly becoming a technician with BMW, how, how did that start coming together? Um, it, it was at the end of high school. I you know, finished year 12. I didn't really have um, an exact focus of what I wanted to do. I, like even then it was like, oh, what am I going to do? Mum and dad said, hey, if you want to go to university, what are you going to study? I said, you know what? I'm over school. Yeah. And dad said, we'll get an apprenticeship. And um, he had connected me up with a couple of his contractor people, uh, Sparkies, to go and spend some time with them through school holidays. And I liked the the technicality of working with electricity. I thought, this is good. This is interesting. And, and I was enjoying that. Um, and then finished high school back in the day when you'd be looking at the Courier Mail for the um, for the jobs. Um, and then... I saw an apprenticeship ad in the job section for Anderton Thompson and the BMW Roundel was Ooh. printed on that little black and white ad in the newspaper. And I thought, hmm, BMW, apprentice motor mechanic. Hmm, I think I might apply for that. That could work. And um, sent, you know, did my CV up better and sent it away and got an interview and got the, the position. So, and that was the start. And was that a hard interview to get through? Like, how tough was the process? Was there a lot of competition at that time? There was. I was told there was 300 applicants. Bloody hell. Um, and <laughs> so I was quite lucky to, yeah. to, to get through. Like, uh, I think there was, from memory, two or three interviews. Yeah, right. The, the last interview was um, my mum and dad had to come down with me as well. Really? Um, so it was quite a, uh, I mean, that wouldn't happen these days. No way. But, what, so uh, what did they have to do? I don't know. Just prove that they existed. <laughs> Perhaps I don't know what the what the theory was. They just yeah. wanted to meet my mum and dad as well. Wow. So um, just ensure that you were good stock. Yeah. Possibly yes, <laughs> yes. But um, yeah, so it, I was lucky enough to. They took on two apprentices that year, um, yeah. myself and another guy. And, uh, so where was that dealer? Um, you know where the Bunnings is now at Newstead, opposite Porsche, yeah. portion. Yeah, just there. Yep, Alan Thompson was in there. Yep. There you go. So they had BMW, Audi. Subaru, Volkswagen, Renault, Peugeot, Fiat, Lancia, and BMW. Yeah, wow. So yeah. a fair collection. Yeah. What Good. year was this? Um, 81, 82? 81, 82. Yeah. 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 Think of the time frame. No, but, no, no. That's right. Yeah, again, I'm just trying to put into context. Yeah. Because, again, that's not a yeah, dealer group I was familiar with. Yeah. <laughs> well, by the time my apprenticeship finished, um, BMW Australia was sort of becoming more stronger and they wanted all the dealers uh, to have the Taj Mahal standalone BMW dealers. Yes, and not and, just all the Euro stuff jammed yeah, into one place. Which Anand Thompson was. They yes. weren't prepared to, to, to build that. Um, and City BMW opened up on the south side where, the, where South Bank uh, uh, was. So they yeah, had right. Mazda and BMW. They lost the franchise and they moved their dealership because of Expo being built there. Ah, uh, yes. And then Tony Mollison, who was um, uh, chief of BMW in New Zealand, came over and opened Brisbane BMW. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. And those early days at BMW, because this is when you're actually having a rancher car and not just mm. plug it into a computer to see what's wrong with it. Mm. Um, so that era, what, what sort of cars were you playing with there at the BMW group? What, what did they have a lot of coming through? Oh, it was, well, E21... 323i's, 318's, yeah. um, 5 series E285's, 7 series E23's, mm. um, and then the new models were coming through. Um, the E30 was released, uh, 3 series. Um, yeah, and then just following on with all the new models. So, so you know, it was that, that era. So into the E30. So you came yeah. into it at a good time. 
Oh, definitely. Plus, there was still classic stuff that I call classic yeah. now that I'm into for coming into the dealerships like the oh. the, the three-litre E9 coupes, the E3 sedans, you know, all that kind of stuff was, was, was there. Yeah, so <laughs> so at the time, you're going, oh, wow, this is a little bit older, but yeah, I was in love. You know, the 6 Series was never imported to Australia officially back then either. Uh-huh. So there was a few privately imported 6s that were really? coming in. When, when did they start coming in? Because they did get... 86, they were officially brought back in. Right. There was a few privately complied cars that were Snuck 633s in. sort of in the late 70s, but most of them were um, privately imported. Because that's a hell of a car. Oh, yeah, beautiful. That was my dream machine. Was it really? Yeah. That, that was the first car I bought when I moved to the UK. Was I it really? I find myself an E24 635 CSI. Wow. Mm. They are stunning, though. I yep. mean, that's, yeah, yeah that, was a, that was a classic car. I've, I've owned quite a few of those. I have no doubt. Mate. How many years to knock over your apprenticeship? How long? Four years. Four years. Back in that day. I don't know whether it's different these days, Mm. but yeah, four years. And you've also got the master technician. Is that an additional Mm. layer of training or is that just? Yeah, it was. BMW Australia was the first to set that up uh, properly amongst all the BMW concessionaires around the world. So um, they put that in place with a, a, a tiered system of levels of a registered technician and a senior technician and then a master technician. Right. So um, with with exams annually and things like that. So you went to Melbourne or Sydney and mm. did these massively high-pressured exams of diagnosis, <laughs> um, two or three days' worth of absolute um, pressure yeah. to, to work out situations and problems that they put into cars. Um, and I was lucky enough to pass that. Um, uh, the first group of master technicians in Australia of the seven guys that were the first to get through. Um, so, yeah, that was So good. you were part of that. You were part of the very I was, first. I was part of that first, first group. Very yeah. first master technicians. Yeah, yeah. And then um, having that training passport when I travelled to the UK, ah. um, I just did a bit of a, you know, a European holiday yeah. and dropped into a few BMW dealers. This was 89. And then um, lots of places going, wow, this is fabulous. Yeah, come back and work for us. So Yeah, right. Because yeah, I was going to ask how, how that all started. And uh, actually, I was going to uh, also I wanted to know on the tests if they asked, um, uh, why, are, why are the indicators not working? Yeah, well, <laughs> but, but, the, but this was the thing. They, they gave real curly problems Did as they? well as real basic stuff. Like, really? Like the fuse is blown. And they wanted, they, the, talking to the, to the guys later, yeah. um, they wanted to analyse your diagnostic process yeah right and that's what it was all about it's not whether you actually solved it it's whether your process was consistent that even if you didn't solve one out of the 15 problems they could see that you would have got there and yeah right so that was the main thing that they was the complex problem solving ability yeah easy stuff because a lot of people will just jump straight to the complex without checking the basics and it might actually be the basics yeah and there was there was one that they chopped the terminal off a fuse oh um, really popped it in the fuse box so it looked Perfect, fine. fine. Yeah. But unless you tested it and pulled it out, you wouldn't have. Yeah. See, that's a good one, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. It's so actually quite a complex. Yeah. So, so it was there to test you. Mate, the rigors of that are actually, mm. that's, see, it all starts making sense as I, you know, think forward in my head. So you've done that. You've been, so how many years did you stay at that dealership? So you obviously finished your apprenticeship and then. Yeah, from Annan and Thompson, moved to City BMW. Yep. So, so South Brisbane and then. Uh, that was only a year, so it was 86-ish, and then 87, Brisbane BMW opened up, Tony right. Mollison, Wallace Bishop built the building, 
um, and then moved in there. I was the, one of the first techs that they wow. employed there. Is that still the same that's footprint? Now the, that's now the Mercedes-Benz building. Yeah, right. There. Okay. That whole building sort of got extended. Um, yeah, so I was there for a while, quite a few years. Then 91 decided I'm going to move overseas. That was the ejection. Yeah, and and what, the dream. what drove that? I guess it was just a passion of travel. I got the travel bug mm. and it was a, a, a case of putting all the pieces together of wanting to go and work on cars that I couldn't work on here in Australia. Yeah, gotcha. Um, and also the, the, the travel, my dad's side of the family, his parents were born on the Channel Islands, so oh, right. I could get a grandparent ancestry visa. Oh, nice. So that meant I didn't have the typical working holiday visa. I could actually get permanently employed. Ah. Um, and that's why I could stay there for 14 years. Well, that helps. Mm. Yeah, that, that gets the shortcut. I was wondering. Yeah, so it's pieces off. of the jig, jigsaw puzzle all just sort of gelled and I thought, mm. yeah, let's push the button and make well, it happen. Bugger it. Because had you been over there before or this yeah, was? Yeah, I did a trip in 89, which like I said before about when I just dropped into a couple of dealers. Yeah, so and that was what planted the seed of going, of going on. back. Yep. This yep. could work. Mm. Yep. Interesting. Mm. Okay, so you've pulled the pin. You've given your notice here. Yeah. And you've gone, see you later, everybody. Did, did you have an idea of how long you were going to go for? Did you have a picture in your head of? No, when you, when you do these things, see, the, the, the economy was going a little bit downhill yeah. here at the time. 89 was spicy. Yeah. And um, so I thought uh, I'm going to go on an extended holiday. I sold all my things, sold my BMWs that I had at the time, sold my go-kart, sold everything. Um, and then I thought, you know what, I'm going to ski myself stupid in Canada for nice. six months. Nice. So I headed to Canada, bought a little car over there and travelled around <laughs> by myself um, and just travelled between ski resorts <laughs> and skiing myself to the point where I didn't want to ski anymore. Couldn't take it anymore. Yeah. yeah and then that was the point where I thought, yeah, I'll, um, I'll catch up with some friends who had moved to San Diego. So I yeah. went right down that west coast um, and then headed off to the the UK. So none of the American cars tickled your fancy? None at all. I dropped into a couple of BMW dealers yeah. whilst I was there just to feel just out to the see. whole um, network that they ran over there. Um, had a few good job offers, but the UK had better appeal. Yeah. Um, as I could get a work visa there, the, the, the US was too complex too with green cards and stuff like yeah. that, people. See, that makes sense. Yeah. Let it go. Yeah. Okay, so then you've jumped over to the UK. Mm. Where where did you base yourself? Uh, initially, it was in London with um, some great friends of mine, Natasha and Kieran. They um, they'd already moved there six months earlier. When I left, they'd left, but I went skiing. They went straight to the, <laughs> to the UK. They're both accountants, got great jobs. Yeah, yeah. In the UK, so they'd established a nice base in Paddington, London. So they said, "No, no, come and stay with me for a while." So yeah. stayed with those guys and um, um, did a little bit of travel, looked for work. Um, had had a few job offers yeah. by the time I'd, uh, um, yeah, run around all the dealers and um, decided on a brand new dealer that was about to open. They weren't opening till August, so I had a month before they opened. They wanted me to start start in that group. They had four dealerships in North London, and um, went for another trip around Europe for a bit. Came back, started work um, with the Mill Cars Group at their Temple Fortune dealership, which was a brand spanking new dealership. Nice and. Mm. Yeah, being one of the first staff in a new dealership as well, yeah. you could sort of help set the standard, I guess, of how yeah. things were going to be done. Yeah, it was good. And and there was a good bunch of guys there that they'd 
they they were a fairly big group, so they sort of yeah. picked, picked a good bunch of people to to work in that group, and um, yeah, it was good good there, mm. good place to ride the recession out mm. in that group um, through the UK for I think I was with them for about four years. Yeah, right. And then moved to another group out at um, Slough in um, near Reading. And um, and then they moved me up to Milton Keynes because they were building another dealership, right. brand new dealership there, and they wanted a master technician in each dealership. Ah, so, uh, yes, makes sense. And where I was living in St Albans was Milton Keynes was a bit closer and it yeah. was going against the traffic, and it was just a, a good choice to move up there to another hmm. fresh dealership. And while you were over there, did you get to tinker with some motorsport stuff, or was it all just? I was trying to do my own stuff. Um, yeah. I did a lot of kart racing, um, endurance kart racing. Um, there was a group of guys, managers and people that we got together at the, uh, the dealership at Milton Keynes and, um, we formed a team. Nice. Um, part of that team was, uh, Rick Parfit, his son, um, Rick Jr. from Status Quo. He, um, mm. he was part of our team and <laughs> we, we sort of travel around Europe and the UK doing endurance yeah, kart right. racing. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Uh, force rake endurance cars. What was the team called? Quo Racing. Quo Racing. Yeah. I've, I've still got the race suit at home. Oh, you're kidding. Yeah. And, a, and, a, and a bomber jacket. <laughs> oh, the bomber jacket would be yeah. sweet. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we went to Le Mans, the 24-hour race for carts. Oh, really? Was, um, two or three weeks before the main race. Yeah. Um, over to Europe in the tour bus with beds, kitchen and everything like that. So um, well, the team with all the carts and all the gear, there's eight of us. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, yeah, it was good. That's rock and cup, roll cup. stuff. It was. It was. A, yeah, all the boys <laughs> in the bath motor racing. It was. It was. It was, a, it was a, shenanigans. Yeah, it was fun. <laughs> but you know, you had to be focused. Of course, we, you do. We uh, we were there to try and try and win. And how did that go? Like, do you have a bit of success with? Um, like we were up against some good good teams. I was lucky enough to qualify the cart that year on in second position. Yeah. Um, and it was a typical case of being on the right tires with changing weather conditions. Yes. And um, I just got it on. Um, second spot in the grid. Nice. I think we came tenth that year out of seventy-eight carts. Bloody hell, that's a mm. big field. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was a big track as well, yeah. like, a, like a very, very big long track. So it was great. What was the best track curve. to race over there? Because that's the thing we're all jealous of here in Australia is um, actual motor racing tracks. Yeah, Brands Hatch was probably the most challenging. Yeah, right. Track I drove on. I've driven Silverstone, Brands Hatch, a uh, couple of other of the smaller ones, but Brands was. Interesting, just because of the undulation, and yeah, stuff like that. Just, well, that's a genetic, yeah, yeah. What about the Formula Two? Where did that slot in? Uh, a good mate of mine, Shane Flynn. Um, I, I was looking after being a mechanic for him while he did the Australian Championship. Mm. Um, this was back mid 80s, yeah, right. Um, and while I was doing a bit of kart racing, and he said, I'll come and span it for me, and I'll let you use the car in local club events. Nice. So I said, I'm up for that. Good deal. So, yeah, so I used to go away with him on weekends and uh, be his mechanic. And then when there was some local club stuff, Lakeside and things like that, he'd say, yeah, yeah, take the car up and uh, Go and have a that. burn. Yeah, so nice. I learned a lot with that. I'll bet you did. Yeah, that was good fun. And then the cart stuff. So how, how far did you take that? Or was it did it really sort of stay kind of club? Oh, it was it was club stuff. In Australia, yeah. it was all club stuff. I I didn't I'd never went to uh, an Australian championship, but nearly won the Queensland championship. We've all got those stories about how I nearly Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but I got um shunted off in the first corner of the first race. As does heaven. Yeah. But um uh but the stuff in England was good because it was pretty consistent and it was a really good series over there yeah, right. to do that. And um, clearly well supported. I mean if you got fairing. seventy I mean that's 
That's a massive amount of teams. Yeah. And that's the thing about motorsport in Europe is it's grassroots level from coming oh, up. It's just massive. This industry is based around it. Yeah. Um, and there's circuits that you can race on everywhere. Kart yeah. circuits, race circuits. And that's a whole another topic about what I hate about motorsport in Australia is that they keep throwing money at temporary street circuits yeah. where every state needs a... Yeah, you need a dedicated... A dedicated motorsport. Well, honestly, so, that's that's a topic that I love um, because on the one hand, I watch the government saying get hands off the streets and then mm. on the other side, I watch them closing down racetracks. Yeah. Um, and I, uh, I, that is an immense frustration. It is. Watching yeah. those things, you know, you build a house next to it, people complain and then they shut the racetrack. Wakefield has been... Exactly. Yeah, been ...tragedy yep. this year and, you know, down in the cane fields there, yep. extreme karting, they got shunted because... Someone's unhappy and wants mm. to, you know, put mm. apartments on the land or whatever the roundabout is there. Yep. But the government throw that. millions at, at yeah. putting a temporary circuit up. Yeah. Gold Coast, Townsville. Yeah. There's, there's two. Ab- absolutely. That they huge amounts of money that could have gone into a dedicated, yeah. um, proper international standard motorsport. And don't get me wrong. Actually, I was a big fan of Indy. <laughs> yeah. Look, I, 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 that there, was there's, special. there's a place for all these yeah. events, but the, 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 the bottom line is, we haven't got the depth of motorsport no. industry in Australia because of that lack of like facilities. Facilities, yeah, because it, it's. I mean, it's probably grassroots here. Mm. You know, if you're not paying for it yourself, yeah. you know, and paying for the infrastructure yourself, mm. it just doesn't exist. And that's, right. that's you know that's why we're lucky that you know we've been so fortunate here that you know Tony Quinn's come in and yeah pumps some money into QR. That's right, and has taken it from what was previously an embarrassment that you'd be ashamed to take sponsors and guests to. Whereas, you know, if you've been out there recently, it's yeah. very respectable. Exactly. Yep. And, and that's that's bloody great. And But, you know, that's private investment. Mm, exactly. And the Queensland government should get on board with that now. Oh, you know, hey, let's, look at what's let's, happening. Let's try and it's getting better. Keep, keep that going. Yeah, yeah. keep yeah. it going because we've got the space, we've got the facilities. Just needs that little bit of love. Exactly. Mm. No, we could, uh, yeah, we could, we could divert down, the, oh, down we, that we, road. We could dance down that all, all the way because, yeah, I think the other one that uh, breaks my heart is that Archerfield Speedway is obviously uh, under the knife, and yep. you know, that's a, a historic place, mm-hmm. and that's about to cop it too. But anyway, we'll ignore that. We'll we'll focus on how much better motorsport is in Europe, which we all know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so you you know, carting aside, motorsport aside. Mm. Um, so you've been working there for the dealer groups. This is where one of the parts of the story that I'm obviously very excited about. How on earth did you find yourself at McLaren? There's, again, it's a combination of some good pieces of jigsaw puzzles all mm. coming together. Yes. Um, luckily enough, being a master technician in the UK, um, I was invited annually to the Apprentice of the Year Awards for BMW, which was held at Bracknell BMW GB. Now, when the McLaren F1 was just about to be released or being, was in the media, they had um, XP3 there as part of the the display for the apprentices to see uh, and a few key people from McLaren cars there. Right. Um, One was the production manager and one was the um, customer care manager. Um, They hadn't actually set up customer care properly then right. but he was involved that manager was still involved in the production side at that point um strangely enough i made myself quite well known to them and mm. chatted to them for quite a while on purpose 
Oh, yes. <laughs> you uh, can smell it. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, I just, and I was blatant enough being an Aussie, you can get away yeah. with that kind of stuff in, a, in, in, in the UK. Yeah, so, um, what's the chance of getting a job yeah. with you guys? And then Harold Dermott, who was um, my future manager for customer care, uh, he said, yeah, look, we're going to be advertising. At some point, we need technicians as we grow that department to look after these cars in service. Um, keep your eyes on Autosport magazine. There'll be an ad and apply. Interesting. Ad. I thought, all right, I know the name. Yeah. I know who to apply to. Just keep my eyes. I was religiously buying oh, Autosport magazine every week. <laughs> um, but the other nice part was that a good customer that I'd made friends with at the dealership yeah. where I originally started in Temple Fortune as a doctor. He had an E28 M5. Um, he knew um, one of the gearbox engineers at McLaren Cars. Right. So um, when the ad turned up, I had my CV ready. Oh, yeah. just ready to ready go. To go. <laughs> <laughs> and I rang um, my mate up and said, can you get me yeah. to see your mate mm. so I can hand my CV to him? Yep. And he said, yep, no worries, make that happen. Took the afternoon off, drove down to Woking. Um, they'd already introduced, you know, by phones. Yeah, yeah. So he was expecting me. So I turned up. Tim Feast was his name. I um, met him, had a quick meeting. He said, look, whilst you're here, Scott, no point giving it to me. Let's go down and you can give it straight to Harold Dermott. Mm. And this was the guy that I'd already met. Yeah. Um, Perfect. Eight or nine months earlier. Laid the groundwork. Yeah. So I said, you remember me? Here's my CV. I'm applying for the job. <laughs> so um, it was it was good that people that you meet yes. um, can help you out. Um, and it was really just having the ear and the balls to yeah. jump the queue. Yeah. Go, just rock out. Yeah, here I am. Yeah. Um, and I was lucky enough that they called me back for an interview. And I, in that interview, I found out that they were wanting to employ two people. Right. Um, so a good mate of mine who I was working with, I said to him, Duncan, mate, yeah. you've got to apply for this as oh, well. Oh, yeah. So um, when I went back for a second interview, I handed them his CV ah. and made him a recommendation. So you should – anyway, long story out of that one. Um, we both worked there for years. And then yeah. one of my other good mates um, got a job in admin. So what? there were three good mates who Seriously? were working in customer care. Yeah. yeah, so Duncan Hill and Guy Montague Pollock, they um, – Good mates of mine that we all worked together for years. Yeah. Went to Le Mans 24 hours every year together. Did lots of great stuff together. Uh, you um, stitched that up well, didn't you? Yeah. So it was a good good opportunity that um, <laughs> I kind of pushed to make happen. Yeah. It was an opportunity to, to good to miss. Um, took quite a big pay cut to go there out of the BMW group. But yeah, um, it was more important, the, the work than the oh. money. To be part of that. Yep. Because at that stage, and you'll you'll have to help me through some of the timing because I'm not 100% on it, um, was the car already released at that stage or was it pre- Yeah. No, yeah. I joined in 96. Okay, yeah. Um, so so after, it was it was, yeah. it was mid-production. They, yeah. were, they were building in the 40s. Uh, yeah. But they'd realised that, um, that they didn't expect the owners to be using the cars so much. Right. Um, and they wanted to set up a, a custom service department yeah right to, to look after people were running up the kilometers yeah yeah on these. they they honestly thought that there was just going to be a car that would sit in people's collections right they hadn't thought about it but anyway Getting, so yeah it was a case of um they wanted to get technicians on board that 
could look after the whole car. Yeah. Because from the Formula One world, they had specialists in each area and guys who only ever worked on suspension, yeah. only ever gearboxes, only ever electronics, yeah. engines. So they wanted master technician types yep. who could understand front, the front whole car, back. Yeah. fly to the other side of the world and solve problems and fix stuff. So that's what the role entailed. And see, this is just wild because, you know, they've gone and released something that realistically the world had never seen. Mm. You know, they've gone and produced the fastest car, fastest production car made to date. Mm. They'd done that ridiculous seating layout that's just incredible. And mm. it's... Yeah, Gordon Murray's design. A crying shame that it hasn't been replicated anywhere else with that centre driving position. Well, McLaren released the... Um, uh, the speed tail yeah. with a central driving position, very similar. Um, but, yeah, there's a, there a few arguments there I've heard through the grapevine about really? the design, Gordon Murray's design. But, it, you know, Ferrari even did something similar yeah, okay. in, the, in the 60s with a with a three-seater. Matra, <laughs> Matra was another car that had a three-seater. I actually owned a Matra Murena. Yeah, right. Um, in England for a little while. But um, interesting French car. But not yeah. central driving position. It was yeah three. But, yeah. Interesting, interesting, interesting. Engineering, engineering. yeah. Because yeah. I mean, it, that's the thing. It was such a groundbreaking car. Mm. What was it like being introduced to that vehicle for the first time? Uh, very. I was very, very nervous. Mm. Um, I can remember some of my first days there, um, having the boss saying, "You know, you can touch it, Scott. You can, <laughs> you, can you can, you can see inside it. To, you're allowed to near it. Yeah, you're allowed to." <laughs> To work on it. I was, Got your white gloves on and yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was very awestruck. Yeah. Um, but it's the environment that you work in as well. Yes. Um, and that whole McLaren experience uh, where the ethos of the company from Ron Dennis mm. down through everybody, the, the perfection yes. of achieving perfection in everything you do um, is, is key. You certainly learn that very quickly. Yeah. And if you're not the kind of person that can deliver that and conform to that environment, mm. you generally don't stay there. You no, see guys come it's and not go. The place for you. Yeah. But the guys who are there and they've stayed there yeah. and they're, they're in that zone, um, engineering and the, the level of, well, in our department was perfect, perfection in customer care yeah. for a, a car that had that level of customer care had never existed because it needed no. to match the car that had Correct. never existed before. So we set some high, high standards. Um, and that's just based on the ethos that flowed right through the company. So it was, yeah, mm. it was good times. And what surprised you about coming to McLaren? Um, surprised me. Uh, I guess just that work environment was great. Yeah. And – and again, the people who owned the cars, the biggest majority were passionate car people. I'll bet they were. Um, there were quite a few owners who just were that collector and yeah. you, you never had any anything to do with, with them or you just yeah. looked after their car. But there were a lot of customers who were passionate car people. Who just like, loved it. Yeah. yeah. Come and to the factory. Obviously, you know, one of the notable owners, and again, I don't expect you to talk about anybody, but, you know, Rowan Atkinson obviously being, mm. you know, a very passionate owner yeah you know who just loved it yeah. loved driving it yeah dusted it up a few times <laughs> yeah yeah and i repaired help help repair the car a couple of times um and, and in doing that got to know him a little bit as well yeah, which right. was great um and he he wanted to know 
the guys who worked on his car. Oh, bet he did. Because again, being an enthusiast, he strikes me as a sort of bloke that would actually want to hang out and mm. learn a few things about the car. Mm. Yeah, yeah. There was a there was a time as well where after we'd repaired the car after the first big accident, um, he he was doing a um, a talk. Andrew Lloyd Webber at his country mansion. They do this industry thing with all the people from the arts a yeah. weekend where everybody is the entertainment. So yes. all the entertainment people are there as the the weekend. Um, and Rowan wanted to take the F1 down there and do a speech on it. Yeah, right. So I put the car in the trailer, trailered it down there, and he said, I've set this podium up, this round podium, got to get it up onto this thing and it'll be rotating. We'll have the cover over it. And he said to me, now, Scott, when I start talking about Concorde, I want you to walk from the back and then just start to slowly lift the cover off the car. I said, right, I'm in. Yeah. So said, just, I want you to help me out. Got this. So he's making this great speech about the McLaren F1 and you know, comparing it to Concorde and things like that. And then he gives me this little look. Gives you the side And uh, I start to walk towards the front of the car and start to pull the cover off. And he goes, not now, Scott, not now, not now. I'll put the cover back on, walk to the back of the car, and I'm thinking, what's going on here? And, um, and then he keeps going on, on, and on, <laughs> and he starts talking about Concorde again. And I go up to do the pull the cover. He goes, not now, Scott, not, not, not. <laughs> And then I'm realising now I'm part of his comedy act. Oh, you're the stitcher. Yep. So, <laughs> so everybody's in stitches by this point. I'm, I'm, and then I'm at the back of the car, and he talks about Concord a, a little bit more. And then he goes, "Now, Scott, now!" <laughs> and everybody's pissing themselves laughing. It was so good, and uh, he thanked me so much for that later. Oh, and, uh, what a legend! But he didn't, he didn't let me in. He just wanted no. the, the comic humour of him controlling the whole thing. Absolutely, it was, just, uh, it was a brilliant. A brilliant afternoon. Oh, and, what uh, a good dude. <laughs> he asked me to take all the guests for laps around the country estate in yeah, his car wow. for the next hour or two. Oh. So, yeah. So little little times like that where you have these experiences that you remember for the rest of your life. Oh, you know, that's that, surreal. These were the pleasures of, yeah. of the people that you meet. Um, and that's always the thing. It's the thing that, you know, I've enjoyed in my career as well is that, you know, working at high levels in these things, you just, you find yourself in places you couldn't imagine. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, at Andrew yeah. Lloyd Webber's country house. Yeah. Helping Rowan Atkinson. I mean, you, yeah. 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 You pinch yourself sometimes. Yeah, like, go, yeah, that, that actually happened. That yeah. really happened. Yeah. Yeah. And like fanging like that, <laughs> that McLaren, you've <laughs> done hot laps. Yeah. Yeah. With people <laughs> in it. Yeah. You know, that's hilarious when you actually say it out loud, isn't it? Mm. And you sort of go, oh, that's just the job. Well, but, at the time, it was just the job. And this yeah. was way before social media was invented. Um, we yeah. had a very strict privacy, oh, confidentiality, confidentiality policy with, in McLaren cars. No photographs, no. nothing. Um, we never talked about owners and their names, no, um, stuff like that. So it was very, very... Because um, that's that's what we set the standard, and the customers appreciated. That. Of course, the um, the discretion is a huge part of that sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah, so it was all all, you know. I've got hardly any photos of those of that, that period time. at that time because because, because yeah. of the the restrictions that we had on us. But these days, part of a company's brief is to get as much, yeah, as as much coverage as coverage possible. As possible yeah. And it's actually probably sad that a lot of that's lost to the ages, and it's just lost to stories now because mm. you know it wasn't recorded. Mm. Um, 
Yeah, and I've got lots of good stories, but that's maybe another day. But yeah, I, I'm I'm sure. I'd probably, <laughs> I, and again, I don't want to get you in trouble here, but I I figured he was a pretty. I figured Rahul was a pretty safe target, uh, he, given that he was a. Yeah, he's very in profile. the media, high profile owner. Owner. Yeah, but there was lots of owners who weren't high profile, just no. very wealthy business people. Yeah, discretion. Yep. And they, they they generally people that have those sort of things really don't want to talk about it. Yeah, and they don't want you talking about it either. So. That's right. And that was in that day as well. Maybe things are a bit different now. A lot of cars are in the US. They're, um, with the current world of social media, everybody's yeah. happy to be having their car out totally. there and stuff like that. So it was a different time in, in the 90s. It was a different time. Jeez, that's a good story. <laughs> so your time at McLaren, and, and I'll have to share, um, there's the photo of you sitting in the McLaren F1 and, uh, that is one of my favorite photos that I've seen you share before. Mm. Um, I don't know, like that, that whole thing just makes me smile. Um, when, when did you wind up at McLaren? When, when did that finish? Um, that was 2004 and, um, the SLR project, I was in our department, we were doing, um, the, the, you know, we were developing the SLR for Mercedes Benz. Yeah. And, uh, our department was involved in a lot of the crash testing, um, putting the cars back together, right. together with the engineers, um, um, understanding the areas that could be repaired, um, making repair sections. So in the field, these cars could be repaired and still have the same signature in a crash mm -hmm. because the, the carbon fiber had to be able to be exactly that same signature for the same impact after it had been repaired. Yeah, right. Um, so all the technology going and watching the cars being smashed into concrete barriers or, or deformable barriers at certain speeds and certain angles and then repairing those with the engineered sections that the, um, the engineering team had developed. Um, so that was interesting work. I was actually in charge of the special tools for um, creating all those special tools right. that were needed out in the in the in the service world for Mercedes yeah, right. Benz. So designing and manufacturing. Yeah, because we were we were the team that were pulling the cars apart mm. and understanding where the needs were of a special tool to because we can't get to that, so we need a tool to do that. How are we going to pull something. the engine out? So a big cradle to pull engines out and things yeah, like that wow. with special pieces. Um, so there was about fourteen or fifteen special tools that were developed that I was in charge of going to Blitz in Germany, the manufacturer of special tools, wow. dealing with those guys. And see, that would have been cool, the crossover with Mercedes, because mm. obviously their, their technology, you know, I've, I've been fortunate enough to have a tour sort of behind the scenes at um, uh, Mercedes Formula One mm. and sort of got to see some of the places you're not supposed to see. Yeah. And, mate, I was blown away mm. at the science I was blown away at the level that they worked to and the R&D. Mm. So having two companies like Mercedes and McLaren partnering on something like that. Mm. It was an interesting time because there was, um, because it was Mercedes in their road car world mm. and it's a massive company. My, massive. Yeah. There was 16 specialists just for one, one little area yeah. and we were dealing with lots of different departments and I remember going over for meetings in Stuttgart and um, we were there, like three of us went over from McLaren and they had like 20 people from Mercedes there and there was a specialist and their job was making sure the box was the right size 
for the part or the tool that we created. Seriously? Yeah. So it was like, like you're a bit soon because we haven't developed any of these tools yet, but nice to meet you. Yeah. Here's your card. Get a box guy. Yeah. <laughs> so there was a box person. That was, that's all he, his role was, was to create the packaging boxes for wow. to put either parts or tools yeah. or whatever in. So massive, massive company. And we're just a little group of guys yeah. who are punching above our weight, really, doing Correct. the best we can to get this car developed and in that area, um, you know, doing doing some pretty interesting work. Um, but to answer your question, yeah, it was 2004 mm. that was happening, um, but uh, my mum wasn't well, so right. there was a, a, a desire to head back to Australia. I had to sort of yeah. commit probably uh, to another big chunk of life in the UK. Yeah. So it was a time that I thought. You had to make the call. Yeah, had to make the call, come back. Um, yeah. Spend the last two years with my mum out here, and then that sort of got me back into the groove of being in Brisbane. Yeah. Hmm. Before we round out on McLaren, that hmm. SLR, so were you there at the end of production or you didn't make it all the way to? Um, at the beginning of production. Beginning right, of production, yes, right yes, at the start. because they set, up, they set up the production line in TC, the new building. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I was, I was there as they started to produce the early cars. Yeah. It had been delayed quite a bit. I went out to Idiata quite a lot with, uh, they did some customer events, all the people who ordered cars. So there's a big proving ground in Spain um, where they invited customers who put their money down all oh, around yeah. the world, um, including Lindsay Fox, come um, to come over and play. And we kept the cars running for, you know, six or seven days. So after they'd played with the cars all day, we'd be working until midnight, yeah, um, replacing brakes and checking them over. Things like that. And the nice part was we were still discovering stuff that needed to then go into the production cars to say, hey. Absolutely. We've got diff issues here. You know, well, that's um, actually a really good test, having a heap of customers that don't know mm. the car but are mm. trusted to be with the car mm. to then go and flog the pants off it. Yeah, yeah. So that was that was good fun. Um, so, yeah, lots lots of stuff happening there just as, as the cars were being built for customers and yeah. then being released to the world and then yeah that's when i left what was that car like to drive they're not one i've only ever seen one and it was just doing a hot laps at nurburgring that's mm. actually the only time i've seen one being driven in anger they're very very fast car um beautifully balanced because it's a mid-engine front front engine yeah car so great turn in um nice balance on the limit but yeah a surprising package for yeah. what it is um and the technology of the engine was a very old school Mercedes, um, bit of a boat anchor of an engine, but it was a proven thing that they could bung an even bigger supercharger on it. And the first time that they'd used um, um, water to air um, intercooler yeah, right. cooling. Um, so again, that was a special tool that had to be developed yeah. to, to bleed that system. Um, so there was lots of good stuff like that on the car that just gave it immense grunt horsepower. Um, but the funny thing was, I think I don't don't know whether you remember that they released a um, an image or a vision. That's what they call it, the SLR vision at Silverstone. Mm. Um, prior to the design of any of the car being done by McLaren, yeah, right. So they'd released this. This is what the car's going to look like. Mercedes Benz being Mercedes Benz, saying, "Yep, we now want you, McLaren, to build this car." And all the engineers are scratching their head, going. Hang on, we do it differently here. We we package everything and then put a skin over the outside of it. Yeah. Um, and they went the other way and said, no, no, you build us a car that looks like that, but it has to do. 
So it became a packaging nightmare compared to the F1 where it was perfectly yeah. engineered in every aspect. Yeah. And then the skin got put around the outside yep. once everything was packaged perfectly. Yeah. So it very contrast in in um in thinking yeah in between those two projects wildly different approaches mm. and the slr always looks so understated as well like you knew it was a weapon mm. but very subtle yes yes they wanted it to still look very mercedes-benz mm. and take a lot of the cues from the current f1 cars of the time yeah and in many ways it wasn't over luxurious and we were expecting it always to be more luxurious but they didn't want it to be that as well which is which is fine yeah. a little bit pared back yeah um, but it was an amazingly good, capable car handling yeah. and performance. There was no doubt about that. Um, for its day, it was a, a stonkingly good car. And that was the end of the McLaren F1 production run as well? Was that Well, sort we'd of... already finished the production. Um, production finished in 98. Yeah, the last car was produced in 98. Do you, do you remember, because again, I don't have the number in front of me, how many F1s were produced? 106 chassis were built all up. Right. So, um, including all the GTRs, spares, yeah. um, stuff like that. Do you know how many still exist? Yet? Oh, I know there's about four that's been yeah. destroyed but over the years. Didn't make it. Mm. There's always a couple. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's that's life. But, yeah, um, they're, they're, they're worth so much these days. Yeah. Um, they're worth repairing. Oh, and, absolutely! Uh, they have they have the ability to remould sections and stuff like that. When I was when I was there, there was yeah. there were some big crashes that, uh, and they could still go back and fix everything because I guess they tooled everything themselves, so mm. it wasn't that's right a big stretch. Yeah. Okay, so you've you've had to come back to Australia under I guess what are very unfortunate circumstances, yeah. Um, and yeah, I can't imagine that was a particularly good time. Um, but you've you've had to sort of get yourself settled here again. Mm. So how how did that pan out? Um, I mean, the first uh, the other thing was I got married on the way back here. Mm. Um, so I had a wife um, who'd never been to Australia. We got <laughs> married in Canada, um, and so it was it was an interesting time um, looking after my ill mum, mm. um, living at home. Yeah, um, all those things had to get a job. Uh, needed to get a job to get a mortgage. Yeah. So uh, I actually started a Mercedes-Benz dealership down the Gold Coast, uh, just spinning the spanners. Yep. Workshop foreman. I just needed some kind yeah. of income to be able to go to the bank and say, need a loan. Yep. So I did that. Um, got then into the BMW world um, where we met. Yeah. And uh, stayed stayed there for quite a, quite a few years in the sales role that I was offered because – I couldn't get anything as technically challenging. I was trying to find work with BMW Australia and yeah. the manufacturers and um, they couldn't offer me anything that was in that realm. And and was that sort of because, you know, we're at a stage there in the mid 00s where the cars were moving towards being more of a computerised package? Was that part of it, that it was moving away from heavy technical analysis or that it was just oh, I, more bread and butter there or, or what, what was I, the difference? I think, I think Australia automotive world is very different than, than cutting edge of what's going on in England and Europe and stuff yeah, like that. Okay. And that's that's probably the difference. And the, all the either the manufacturers that were still here in Australia at the time or the importers yeah. don't rely on someone as technically in 
or what I've done in my career yeah. to, to be part of their network. So it was basically if you want a job in cars, sales is the way you to go. to sell them. Okay. So the, yeah. it wasn't the intention to go into selling. That was just no, no, it was, that's what, what was available. Yeah. And obviously you knew the product intimately. Yeah. And I thought about it and I thought, you know what, if I'm going to sell something to somebody, it's got to be something I'm passionate about. Absolutely. And BMW was a brand I was very passionate about. So yeah. Yeah, I thought this should be easy. <laughs> yeah. How did you find that transition from the workshop to the sales floor? Well, um, the nice part was that working at McLaren, you do get um, a good understanding of customer relations and yeah. communication with people. So I kind of took that. Um, as well as all the training from BMW, I must admit they do some amazing sales training. Mm. And I felt a little bit of fish out of water, but learning the product, I could talk about cars all day to people. Yeah, It was the training that I needed how to move people towards sale, road, yep. road to a sale, um, you know, getting getting the, the deal done. Yeah. Um, so that, that was all new and I was learning rapidly doing my best so mm. i think i did okay i never did amazing but i did okay mm. but after lots of years of doing that you, you yeah and i had some nice challenges in the middle you know like mini challenge and being yeah. involved with with some special projects at that dealership which was good fun um and that kept my passions alive in that area at yeah. the same time so but it was you, good you had a good opportunity to tinker and it was always one of the nice things was they, you know, they were always keen to, you know, play with different ideas. I, I Honestly, I thought Mini Challenge was really fantastic because mm. obviously that was a time when Mini was, you know, really pushing in to the Australian market. Mm. Mini Challenge was obviously part of that as a, as a broader concept. And that Mini Challenge car, t tell me about how that sort of all came together with the Mini Challenge car and then you being involved as well in that series. Um, the... Well, Mini Challenge came to Australia and uh, One Make Series, these cars were sort of promoted as a, as a full-on BMW motorsport prepared vehicle. Mm. So a lot of oh, reasonably high profile people in motorsport thought, yep, let's get involved with this good fun. <laughs> and uh, the owner of the dealership that we worked at um, thought let's get involved because obviously through BMW Australia it was all promoted out to the dealers to say you guys should get involved etc etc. Um, and my talent was somehow discussed with the people running Mini Challenge, right? Um, and my services were exchanged for for um, can't remember whether it was a car or yeah something something anyway. So I was given to them for free, nice uh, to be the technical manager. There you go. For the series for the first year. Um, knowing full well that I was going to throw myself into it and enjoy it because it was a lot of data logging and things like that. that the technical yeah. manager had to be the liaison between the teams and BMW Motorsport who built the cars and um, the issues that you go into thinking, yeah, yeah, we'll get involved with this, but you don't understand that there's going to be all these amazing, these frustrating issues with these fresh race cars. Oh, of course. Um, which had too much road car software still in them. They weren't right. pure race cars. And that was right. the biggest issue that they, they really had just taken road cars and put roll cages in them. And, uh, yeah. and that was it. They really should have made them a little bit 
less road car. Yeah. So it would still throw up some... Lots of faults and stupid... Um, yeah. I think because BMW didn't want to ever see engines blow up and stuff like that, they had a lot of safety stuff still in yeah, there that yeah. was causing frustrations for the drivers going, well, I'm feeling it losing power here. Uh, it cuts yeah, out there. So it is actually cutting itself out to protect yeah. itself. Yeah, there's a lot of protection uh, stuff that the, the Germans never admitted that was right. in it, um, but eventually they did. Yeah, well, you could feel it. Yeah. Yeah, mate, I want to bounce the limiter. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we had some really great professional drivers. Paul Stokel yeah. was in there oh, yeah. for the first year. Um, and guys like that that you – trust yeah. in that they, they know, know a car they, they know what they're talking about correct um and we're constantly trying to get the feedback um back to germany and we had some of the german guys come out that was the best moment because we could have them here in australia yeah seeing what was going on and they were you knew that they couldn't say stuff no but you know you go out and have a few drinks after yeah. a, a race weekend and Mate, things get a little just fall bit, out <laughs> get a little bit more um uh you know, <laughs> deeper into the conversation and yeah. um, things get admitted to you. So, um, yeah, it's always good. It's, 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 it's a nice feeling to, to have an influence on a whole series that by the end of that first season, we'd sorted out a lot of frustrations. Yeah. And then it went into, uh, um, uh, you know, another three years after that, that, yeah, unfortunately, financially things happened behind yeah. the scenes that meant that it didn't last. No. And look, I, one make series have always struggled. Mm. I, you know, I, I look at all the series that have come and gone, you know, in the many years that I've been paying attention and they really do have a hard time mm. when it is just a single car, single manufacturer. Yeah. Mate, the, uh, I reckon the Hyundai Excel series has to be the, the outlier. That's, that's yeah. the only one that's. And that's just based on, again. Cheap. Cheap and <laughs> privateer motorsport. With yeah. No support from any brand. No. It's just a group of guys got together and goes, let's just race all these things. Let's just race these. These are cheap and good and we'll yeah. thrash the guts out of them. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> formulate a very, very basic set of rules. And yeah, away we go. That's got to be the best one make series, I think. I'm, I'm trying to think of a series. Well, that's there was the, the, H, the HQ series and the Gemini series back in the um, 80s. Yeah, right. Yeah, they they were pretty successful as well. The Gemini's were, were very good because yeah. that was a, again, like the Hyundai stuff now. Yeah, yeah. Relatively inexpensive cars like, to buy. You think about it, we're in the 2020s now. Those were being made in the 1990s, mm. those cars, mm. and they're still flogging the guts out of them. Mm. Yeah, but there's plenty of them out there. So there's lots of parts, <laughs> lots, of, lots of body shells. Yeah, so it works. Oh, no, well, poor old Mini Challenge, because they were a cool car. They were, yeah. I, I actually really enjoyed, yeah, I got to turtle that around a little bit. That mm. was a uh, yeah. that was a good thing. Yeah. Um, And so in terms of other special projects, was there anything else that sort of tickled your fancy in that time? Oh, got to build a couple of nice BMW E9 coupes. Yeah. Um, there was a lovely... Um, motorsport replica that we built, art car replica. I won't go into that case. There's mm. um, names that I shouldn't mention. People listening. Yep. Yep. <laughs> um, of a particular artist. Um, but um, yeah, that was a lovely car to build. Yeah. Um, good project. Got to enjoy that around Lakeside a few times from yeah, some nice. charity events. Um, that, that car lives in Melbourne now. Yeah, right. Um, hmm. Is it part of a private collection or is it in a um it's public? It's, it's a business um, ownership. Um, Southern guys at Southern BM. Yeah, right. Plug, they own it now. Nice. They use it for um, Have it out on display. That's a good looking car. Yeah, it's still wrapped in the um, uh, the IMSA motorsport colours now. Yeah. So hidden the beautiful yeah. paintwork of the art car that mm. we copied. Mm. Mm. No, no, benchmarked. Yes. Benchmarked. Yes. Yes. In, uh, took, took influence from. Yes, that's right. Yeah, there's a few small details that aren't 
that make it that one percent <laughs> that's that's income. the margin of difference right. isn't it yeah now obviously your role there was sales uh but you were certainly finding yourself reasonably enthusiastically pulled into other things mm. at some point in time you've decided that you want to have a crack at this by yourself yeah talk well, me through how that started well i always had a bit of a passion I had it in my head that, you know, I really should do some stuff myself one day. Yeah. And um, I could see I could see some openings and I always had a passion for classic cars and tinkering at home with my own cars, doing it for friends. Um, so I decided to jump out of the car dealership network and have a year off, see if there was anything else out there that I could get into. Um, did a bit of travel. Um you know, a bit of a sabbatical. And yeah. in, in that time, I couldn't think of anything else I'd rather be doing except cars. It was drawing me back all the time. Yeah. So when I got back from the travels, I was I had a few friends saying, oh, can you, can you fix this on my car? Can you fix this? And I was, yeah, yeah. So I'm crawling around on their garage floors <laughs> and um, <laughs> doing, doing improvements and things like yeah. that. And a couple of friends said, oh, you should do this for business. And then that sort of triggered the, hmm, maybe that's not a bad idea. Let me just think about that. Let it bounce around in my head for a little while. Yeah. And then, yeah, that was the catalyst to really say, you know what, let's give it a go. And and good support from my good close group of friends, encouragement. Um, yeah, a few mentors sort of were backing me saying, you know, like this is right at the beginning of COVID. Yeah. Um, Terrible time. <laughs> if you can start a business and get yeah, it off and the ground. And make it survive. Um, then it'll, uh, it'll, it'll be fine. You'll, you'll never have any troubles. Yeah. So, yeah, that was the, the, that the was passion the of tinkering. I wanted to restore classic stuff, all the stuff I love. Yeah. Um, not service, brake pads, oil changes. No. Restoration is the majority. I mean, I still do a little bit of that for my clients, but not. It's mainly about the restoration and, and a bit of motorsport prep, which yeah. I've got to build that side of the business too. Which is a bit of fun mm. because the, the restoration, so that obviously speaks to you. So what are some of the cars that you've restored um, so far as part of the business? Oh, um, a nice E24 635, nice black one. That was a yeah. colour change for I've the customer. And uh, a 2002 E10, same thing, was a different colour, now black. And... Um, what else have we done? There's a E9 three-liter CSL being restored at the moment. Um, that's going to end up being a lovely, lovely car. Um, then uh, I've got an E30 M3 that I'm going to do for a customer soon. Nice. And uh, yeah, there's been been a couple of smaller projects where I'm doing parts of the mechanicals for people as well, where they'll look after sorting the bodywork out yeah. and then I'll do mechanical stuff that they're not capable of. So it's a, it's a bit of a, um, just doing the bits that people can't do mm. themselves as well for some clients. And, you know, the name of the business makes sense, but how did that come about? Were there any other, uh, any other close names? Um, no, I, th I think I, I created that business name Back when I was still well and truly in the um, in the 
dealer world. Yeah, right. I started my Instagram account with that name. Really? Um, and I'd, I'd had that combination of the thought of modern classic as in term that gets used. Yeah, yeah. As, oh, that's a modern classic. Yeah. And I just thought modern classic motorsport. Makes sense. As a business name. It's probably not a bad thing. Let's register it. I, I officially registered it as a proprietary limited company way back then. Yeah, right. And um, I started the Instagram account before I had the courage to start the business. Seriously. So it was, it was, it was definitely a seed from a long – From way back. Way back, yeah. And in terms of starting the business, you know, there's a, there's a lot that goes into it. Um, mm-hmm. What's caught you off guard in terms of setting up your own shop? Um, off guard really is just – the the worry about where your customers are going to come from. Yep. And when you sign the lease on a building and you spend the money to set it up and you then are going to hell for leather to try and let everybody know <laughs> what you're doing. That you existed. Yep. Um, without spending a lot of money. Yep. And I just thought, well, I need to just let all the people I know in this industry mm. know what I'm doing. And yeah. – um, but but the that was that was the, the a good thing of your question catching me off guard was the worry, but then the nice surprise yeah. of how people find you fairly quickly. Oh yeah, which is good um, when you got skills. Well, word travels fast. Yeah, and and the internet, um, you know, social media. As much as I cringe with a lot of stuff about social media, but as a business, mm. it works because what I do, if I go to cars and coffee events, yeah. um, allows me to display my wares, talk to customers, what's in the workshop, what I'm doing, yeah. keeps people informed and see what, what I'm doing. Absolutely. Um, and people love cool cars. Yeah, that's it. And um, I'm finding that out you know, every day. I'm, I'm getting a phone call from somebody who's recommended me or, yep. um, you know, a friend of mine told me to give you a call about this. So there's, there's this constant growth that's been steady and that's, you know, the, the everyday phone calls weren't there in the beginning. No. And now it's... Uh, it's on its way. It's on its way, which is good, yeah. And obviously I know a little bit about this. Are, are you able to talk to us about phase two of the business, you, where, where it's going next? Well... I'd always had a plan to have part of the business's car storage because it makes sense to look after customers' collections. Mm. Um, that being motorsport cars that aren't regularly used or classic cars or just collection, a collection for people passionate about cars and can't help themselves buying way too many of them would fit in their home. Correct. Um, so you and I understand that. <laughs> We're very familiar with this with yeah. too many toys, not enough space. <laughs> so that was a little section on my website when I created it for car storage yeah. that um, I needed to be patient to wait and I've got to find the right building and there's plans in place that uh, hopefully next year we'll kick that off well. And I'm, when I do something, I'm going to do it well. I have no doubt. And it will be a, a, a nice facility. Mm. Um, yeah. No, there's come, one thing I've come to appreciate about, appreciate about you over the years. It is always perfection. I strive for that. Oh, mate. It, yeah. Mm. It, 
it is something that has always stood out. And even going down to your current workshop, when I walk through there, you know, the the level of presentation of the cars in there, you know, you go to a lot of workshops and uh, there's just, you know, stuff everywhere. But uh, Yeah, well, I try and keep it looking good in there. I mean, it's an old place. It's a, it's, yeah. A, it's yeah, it's not the most amazing building, but yeah. it was a place to start. Mate, and, it's shed uh, number one. That's it. Mate, my business started under my house. Yeah. Yeah. But you've got to start somewhere. You've got to start uh, somewhere. Yeah. It's, uh, but I'm, I'm looking for the next step. And, and part of that next step is to move into something that has the ability to store customers' cars yeah. very well. How big do you think you'll go? What do you reckon? Mm. Got a number in your head in oh, terms of square meters? Yeah. Probably somewhere between 450 and 600. Mm. Nice. Mm. Double stack. Is that the, yeah. Yeah. We'll go triple. Triple stack. Yeah. Nice. Oh, mate, I'm going to have to compare notes on that's this. That's the plan. That's the plan. Yeah. Mm. And and in terms of, you know, your race car preparation, mm. what, what sort of stuff do you do there with, with the race car prep? Oh, at the moment, it's really just customers who like to do track days. Okay. Um, just making those nice mods. I've um, got a couple of good customers who just have um, cars that they want to go and do track stuff. So it's a case of making sure the car is capable of doing it, upgrading brake pads, Better cooling for their brakes. Mm. Um, just the little things. Just the little things that take a road car into a better place for yeah. going out and doing sprint stuff. Um, but, yeah, would love to do a bit more. I've done a lot of stuff with a good friend and customer who's no longer with us but mm. prepped his tarmac rally car for many, many years. And um, that was a nice experience to sort of take that from a relatively standard E30 M3 and develop that as over the years. Yeah. Into a full blown track weapon. Yeah. It's a pretty, pretty good package at the moment and I'm very capable of being a good track weapon or a tarmac rally car. Yeah. Mm. It's good fun. And, and with the sort of cars that you're looking to work on, you know, what for you, what, what are the cars that make you smile when someone rings up and says, I've got, one of these what's what's the sort of car that really makes you smile oh any any classic bmw really is that's that's my main thing i love porsche 911s as well um the older stuff um you know old ferraris even even though i sort of have a bead of sweat yeah um some of of those um but yeah definitely european cars is is my my things all the euro stuff yeah yeah, it's always always going to be a lot of beamers and yeah but I appreciate. I love to go you know, cars and coffee events and just yeah. look at everything that's out there. Just see what's yeah yeah yeah. See what's around. Find yourself some occasional new challenges. Mm. Oh, I've got people wanting me to restore alphas and stuff like that. I've got a, run I've got away. A, I've, got a, I've got a few. I've got a few customers with, with alphas as well as BMWs. But um, but it's uh, it's nice to have. Um, uh, work in the pipeline yeah, yeah. always yeah. Yeah. <laughs> bloody hell i don't know if you're ready to do that to yourself <laughs> not quite but we'll, we'll see it's good it's good to know that you know people would like you to do it whether uh, whether, whether you take the job on eventually because i've got a reasonably good um forward flow of work at the moment yeah which is good. oh mate they look they're fun cars being a uh a long-term Alfa Romeo owner myself mm. but uh boy oh boy they can provide some headaches <laughs> yeah but it's it's the era of those cars, the design, the technology. Right, the design, you know. and look, the sound. Because, yeah. you know, where we're going now with, you know, cars that, you know, operate like your toaster, um, as impressive as the technology is, the lack of the lack of raw passion, and mm-hmm. I'll give Alfa Romeo something. Uh, the, elect- the electrics might be shocking. The metal might be rusting. 
but bloody hell, when you get up it, mm. oh, that sound. Yeah, the mechanicals in Fiat's Alphas, yeah. you know, they, they, they knew what they were doing oh. to make a good, good driver's car. Makes you smile just thinking mm. about it, you know, yeah. watching. I remember when I bought mine, I had a um, uh, Cloverleaf Boxer, one of the 1.7s with the twin downdraft webbers into mm. the horizontally opposed four-cylinder. And I remember my mechanic saying, he said to me, mate, if you want this thing to last, you got to run it to red line. Mm. every day mm. but right up yep. mechanic told me to yep, let's do and it. it just loved it like i had that car for two hundred thousand kilometers i reckon i put on that mm. and mate just flogged it day in day out mm. and it just loved it like mm. that was what it was built to do it was built to rev it yep it'd just sing yep. but i did also you know crack the chassis and you know, a few other things where they're a bit yeah yeah <laughs> that russian steel <laughs> <laughs> Yep, rust and steel. Ah, didn't work well. Yeah. Now, Scotty, I'm conscious of your time. I'm, I'm not going to hold you up too much longer. Mate, if people want to get in touch with you mm-hmm. and follow the things that you do, where can they find you? Um, best place, I guess, is um, Instagram or Facebook. So it's Modern Classic Motorsport on Instagram, all one word. And um, I've got a Facebook version of that as well, plus my website, is um same name yep modern classic motorsport.com.au beautiful so what i'll do is i'll throw uh some links underneath this so that people can click through and have a look um but scotty absolute pleasure likewise man. having you here this morning sharing your story sharing a few <laughs> few funny ones as well and mate i really look forward to uh what happens next we we might have to catch up again uh once the uh once the new warehouse is open yeah, yeah. When when we get to that point, I'll uh, mm. definitely come in and uh, mm. have another chat. Show me what's next. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, that's it for today. We'll catch you next time.